Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I am a man. I'm a man. I'm a man, man. Now, I am a man who is a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled, dyed-in-the-wool, lover, believer, follower of Jesus. I'm also a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a friend, a pastor. And I wear these hats, all of them, in the year of our Lord, 2023, in the country of Canada, the beautiful province of New Brunswick, in a place called North America. This is me. It would be wonderful, convenient even, if I lived in a time and a place where the flow of mainstream culture, the world that I find myself living in, if it flowed in tandem and alignment and perfect harmony with those roles of being a follower of Jesus, a husband, a father, a pastor, a friend, a brother. It would be wonderful and convenient even if it was easy and natural to be in the culture we live in, a man, a husband, a father, a son, a pastor, a follower of the Lord Jesus. It would be great and convenient even if we lived and if I lived in a place where the flow of culture and the values and the priorities and the ideas and ideals and agendas of the culture in which I lived flowed lazily along in agreement with who I am. But I don't live in that time and that place. I often find myself wishing for a society that feared the Lord and that saw Jesus as Lord and revered the word of God the way that I try to do. I find myself longing for and wishing for a society that understood its need for Jesus as Savior and a society that understood that without the king, there is no kingdom. And I find myself wishing I lived in a place that lined up easily with biblical values and that made it easy to, and natural to walk along with the truth of the Bible in the way of Jesus. I find myself longing and wishing that I lived in a place where I could send my kids to school or turn on the TV or walk through a mall where we would only receive messages that affirm the message of the gospel aligned with the reality of the kingdom. But as you know, we don't live in that place. Recently, I was walking with my daughter uh, through the halls of her high school. Yes, my daughter is in high school. Yes, I'm that old. Um, and we, we went into a classroom where she participated and reached for the top. My, my daughter is an academic athlete, and uh, she's super smart. She gets it from me. Um, <laughs> not so much. But as I was sitting in the classroom and looking around while her, her competition was going on and noting the things that were on the wall, I was reminiscing of when I was in public school. I was in elementary school and middle school and high school, went through the public school system. I can remember being in grade three, Miss Sparks class in Fredericton. And she would, she would teach us the Lord's Prayer and she would read Bible stories right out of the Bible. The Ten Commandments were on the wall. There was crosses, pictures of hippie Jesus. Like all of it was there in the public school system. And then as I looked around my daughter's classroom and saw those had been replaced with rainbows and gender pronouns, and this is not a comment on rainbows and gender pronouns. This is a comment on how things have changed. The world that I grew up in has shifted. And it is very different. 
Now, I don't think me reminiscing and being nostalgic about days gone by is all that helpful. Those days are behind us. But I wonder if you, church family, have noticed the shift in culture. And that things in this world, in this mainstream culture in which we live here in Canada, is, is actually not just flowing in sequence and a nice lazy tandem with the values of the kingdom of heaven, but on the contrary is starting to push back against it. It's troubling. It's difficult. It's challenging. And I wonder if many believers even realize how much things have shifted. It's, it's very possible. I don't know if you've ever done this before. If you've ever swam in like an open channel of water. I remember one time uh, my cousins and I decided to go to the Kingston Peninsula and, and swim across the river to Browns Flats, about a nautical mile. And we got out in the middle and in the channel and we didn't realize, but the, the power of the river just was taking us way down off course. And we didn't really notice until one of us kind of popped up and said, oh, we're not only going across the river, but we're now a mile down river and we've got to go all the way up that way. It's very possible to not notice the subtle creep and drift when you are in a current and I have noticed in myself and in our church and in so many families of my brothers and sisters in Christ, the struggle of the influence of culture up against the values that the Bible lays out. It's, it's a challenge. I believe that we are in this place right now where we are feeling the pressure of a culture that does not line up with the Christian ethic. And for a lot of us, a lot of us, this is the first time in our lifetime we've ever had to deal with something like this. Many of us grew up in Canada where it was largely in line with Judeo-Christian values. And so it wasn't uncommon to have prayer in the schools and prayer at the beginning of a town council meeting. And it wasn't uncommon to see the imagery of Christianity, crosses and the Bible peppered throughout our society. But that has shifted, hasn't it? And it's important that we notice these things, and it's important because I've actually found that the center place where the struggle and the war and the tension and the, 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 the incongruity of culture and the biblical ethic, the place that I feel it the most is in family. It's in the place of family, the struggle of family. It's the center point where this is all playing out. We now live in a time where mainstream culture is applying pressure on the biblical view of family and the Christian view of family, and we are in a time where there is a redefinition of marriage, its makeup, its purpose, its, its job. There's been a redefinition of gender and identity and humanity. There's a glorification of sexuality. There's a glorification of choice in our culture today. And it's adding to a level of conflict for the average Christian that many of you didn't grow up with. I didn't. I believe we're in a moment in history where a decision has to be made, where we need to take stock of the things that are pressuring us and choose where we are going to stand and what we're going to stand on. It reminds me a little bit of the, the book of Joshua when the Israelites came in to the promised land and they stepped in and Joshua stood before the whole of Israel and he said, listen, there are forces surrounding us that are coming against what God has for us and you need to choose this day for yourself who you will serve, whether it's the God of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, the false gods or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think we're in one of those moments right now 
where Christians have got to take stock and decide who they'll serve. Next few weeks, we're going to explore this topic of family and try to get some crystal clarity on what the Bible has to say about it and the role of family and the vision for family and the role of identity and sexuality and marriage and parenting and being a son and a daughter. But here's, I want to just set this up before we dive in. What I'm not going to try to do is spend my time chasing cultural ideas and trying to dismantle them or to build some statistical case for the insanity of some of the ideas that are being set forth as truth in our culture. That's a very tempting thing to do, isn't it? To run around and be the one to point out the emperor with no clothes, but that's not helpful. What I want to do is I just want to set the scripture before us and to get clarity on what God's invitation and intention is for families and hope that we can hear the invitation And like the song we sung earlier in worship, decide to build our life on that foundation. So here's what we're going to do today. This is just a a setup. In the next few weeks, we're going to get into the the details. But today, here's what I want to accomplish. I want to get clarity on four things. Because some of you might be drifting down the river in the cultural stream and you don't even realize it. It happens subtly. So I want to kind of come back to the Bible and I want to find out, according to the Scripture, what is the purpose of families? What is the problem facing families? What is the procedure for families? And if we have time, which I hope we will, the possibility with families. Four things we're going to move first. We're going to move fast. First thing, what is the purpose of families? Are you with me? Are you ready? Can you add 10 minutes on the clock? I'm going to need it. Thank you. The purpose of families. Long sermon alert. No, we're going to move quick. Go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read some scripture together. And we're going to get the original design for family. Now just stay with me. I know there's discomfort. I can sense it in the room for a variety of reasons. Just hang tight. I promise you that every week is going to be good news for people. For all people. No matter your family status. Genesis 1. The story of creation. For those of you who are new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, Genesis is called the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins. And why it's here is not to give us a scientific document as to how God made things or not to give us even a a specific historical chronological order. It's here to give us a worldview and a framework to operate in. And so we find in the Bible it begins like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We are not here by happenstance or coincidence. We are here because God created things. God ordered things this way. And if we had time, we'd look at the whole thing where it says God made the heavens and the earth and he made light and dark and he made the sun and the moon and he made the skies and the land and he made the the land with animals and vegetation and he put creatures in the sea and creatures on the land. And then we come to day six and there's this kind of ascending brilliance and glory happening in the creation story and we get the, the, the account of God creating, creating humans. Let's read it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, what can we notice here? Three things I want to pull out. If you just keep this in front of you, but here's three things I want, I want to make sure you don't miss about the creation account as it pertains to family. First, note the magnificence of the creation of human beings, specifically family. 
Did you catch it in verse 27? God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. There's nothing else in all of creation, according to the Bible, that God made so glorious as to say that he created human beings, families, men and women, and subsequently children in his very image. There is a level of ascending glory in the creation account, and the crown jewel of creation is people. There is nothing more important, according to the scripture, after God has created all things, there is nothing more important, more valuable, more glorious, beautiful, magnificent than people. It is the crown jewel of creation. Now just start thinking of all the screensavers and YouTube videos you've seen of the glory and wonder of creation. You think of nebulas and stars and the things that the new satellite uh, like telescope is showing us about the cosmos and all of its brilliance and complexity and mystery pales in comparison to the glory of human beings. You think of giraffes and lions walking down the Serengeti trails or a trail, I don't know, but you know what I mean. Pale in comparison to the glory of human beings. You think of the Great Barrier Reef and all of its color and life and vitality. Nothing compared to the glory of human beings. You think of the Rocky Mountains and you think of the Yukon and all of its expanse and brilliance with the, the northern lights green above the night. It's nothing in comparison to the glory and complexity and wonder of human beings because human beings have been created in the image of God. That's holy. It's holy. You ever wonder why families are under attack? Why identity is under attack? Why marriage is under attack? Because it is the most holy part of creation. And if there is an enemy, which I believe there is, who wants to desecrate and destroy all that God has made and loves, the crown target, the number one target is people. It's families. Because we bear the image of the Almighty. Behold the magnificence of it. Now let's check the mandate of families. It gives us the purpose of families. Did you catch it? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and, and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So what's this getting at? It's telling us that human beings were, were designed to bear God's image and represent him and carry forward his nature, his likeness, his goodness, his power and authority on the earth. No big deal. There's no such thing as just a person. Like you are created glorious and our original design was to actually walk in the authority of God, cultivating and bringing order and life and abundance to the earth. It's a massive, a massive statement. Number three, note the makeup of families. It gives us some clues. It shows us that God, it says in the beginning, God created human beings in his image. He made them in his likeness, male and female. It speaks about both male and female. It gives us a little more detail in Genesis chapter 2. Do you want to look at it? Good. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. That's an important word right there. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought to them to the man to see what, could, what he could name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and birds in the sky and all the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Now this is a very important text because it's showing that human beings are incomplete alone and that no, no animal... Nothing in creation can actually be a suitable complement for us other than another type of human. Look what happens next. Then God, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now we're going to talk a little bit more, a lot more about marriage in a couple weeks. So I'm not going to go too deep, but it's important that you notice a few things. First, human beings were made by a community for a community. By a family for a family. If you read back through the creation account over and over, you see this. And God said, let us make man in our image. What's this us and we? Well... God is not one, God is three in one, isn't he? The Father, Spirit, and the Son. And out of that family, out of that community, he creates human beings in his image to bear his image and to function similar to how he functions. And so we find out that we are actually incomplete in and of ourselves. We need each other. And specifically, God made man with this counterpart woman. And as they come together as one flesh, united this actually generates the family. And through the family, the family is the engine that creates new life on the earth. And so we find that human beings are made for each other. Man and woman made for each other. And then family subsequently. And we find that creation is actually completed in the man and the woman coming together. And this is important. Some of you Bible nerds, you need to look at this a little bit deeper. But if you go back through the Genesis account of creation, you see these binaries coming together. You see God created the heavens and the earth and he brought them together. God created the sun and the moon. God created day and night God created the, the, the earth and vegetation. God created the plants and the animals. And you see this kind of weaving together of complementary things, and it's fulfilled, and it finds its culmination when he creates the man and the woman, and he brings them together as one flesh. Don't miss how important it is. Those, the, the, the man and the woman, the male and the female, are there at the beginning on purpose, and there's no other there's no different genders. There's no other arrangements. It's just this idea of man and woman completing the binary coming together of things that God designed to be contrasting counterparts. The, the, the word for suitable helper in there, the word actually, like it, it says, um, it, it kind of, it's defined like this, like alike yet different. The same yet complementing each other. So get this, we are made for relationship, family relationship. We are made to complement one another. And the highest order of that is when a man and a woman come together in union, both physical, relational, emotional, and spiritual, called a marriage. And here's the most important part that we get in Genesis 1 and 2, because things are about to get ugly. God is at the center of it. 
that there is no marriage originally without God right there holding it all together. You have this presence of God at the center of the marriage. So keep that in mind. Let's just pump the brakes for a second and let's contrast what the Bible says with some of the ideas that are flowing in mainstream culture. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to try to get on statistics or on my high horse. I just want to show you the two different messages and let you reckon with it and decide where you're going to stand. But there are some ideas in mainstream culture that you're being confronted with right now that do not line up with what we just read. First is this, that family and marriage and gender, according to the Bible are not social human constructs. They have been ordained and created and established by a holy God. Let that sink in. This is not something that people invented. If you're going to take the scripture seriously, it actually says that this was God's idea. That gender, marriage, family are not social human constructs. They're bigger than that. They're holy. Number two, of all living things... Human life is the most sacred because we have been created in the image of God. There's nothing on planet Earth more sacred than a human being. Now, I know that sounds like, oh, that goes without saying. Think about your life. Do you always act like human beings are the most sacred? I don't. Sometimes I love my dog more than I love you. (laughs) It's almost true. It's not, though. He's just a purebred good boy. Leave me alone. Like, he's just... But no, there's, there's the, the order of creation says there's nothing higher than the value, the supreme value of a human being. There's nothing more precious, nothing more glorious because we've been created in the image of God. Number three, according to the creation account, it is good and blessed. It's good, it is good, it's blessed, commanded even, to multiply, to make babies. Some of you husbands, you're like, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible right here. Let's go home. No, it is good to multiply, to make babies. The earth is not overpopulated. Why did I put that in there? There is, a, there is an idea floating around in culture right now. It comes from something called Malthusian theory, and that is the idea that the earth is overpopulated and there's not enough food to go around. Anybody heard of something like that? That's from hell. In fact, the truth is, I'll get, I might get in this later in the series, but there is an actual birth crisis that is coming. There is an actual crisis coming where there is, the birth rate of human beings is not keeping up with the age. And Christians believe that babies are good things, that having families are good things, that having lots of babies is a good thing, and that there's more than enough to go around. Amen? There might, there's enough food for everyone to eat. There's just not enough for everyone to be greedy. So it is good and blessed. These are things we've got to kind of, do I believe this or not? Now, to, to kind of recap, I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to get to the elephant in the room and then some good news. But let's just make sure we get this because I want to just say this so that you hear it. The human family has been created by God. Amen? It's been designed and destined to reflect God's image, his glory on the earth, to carry it forward to carry forth his rule and reign through community, multiplication, and governance under the flourishing of all things. No big deal. It's an important thing we're talking about. Now, here's the elephant in the room. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds great. 
but it's not that simple. It's not that simple. You don't know my family. You don't know my history. You don't know my mentality. You don't know my desires. You, you, it, it sounds great to read a nice little passage of Scripture, but then when I contrast the one man, one woman for life under God, making babies, living happily ever after, sounds great. It hasn't worked that way for me. Not everyone can get married. Not everyone can find a wife, which is a good thing. Not everyone can have babies. Not everyone's attracted to the opposite sex. Not everyone can stay married. How many know the family is complicated? And the reality that every single one of you live in is a far cry from that quaint little romantic picture we read in Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? See, the family is simultaneously the most beautiful and glorious thing on earth and the most broken and painful thing on earth, isn't it? Does anything cost you more sleep and cause you more heartache and more heartbreak? than these simple little relationships. See, here's the problem. And the Bible doesn't tiptoe around this. In fact, note, we just read page one and two. There's a lot of pages after that, isn't there? And the pages after that start to get into the weeds about the problem facing all families and all people. And that is the problem of sin. And the problem of sin has led to broken families, broken marriages, broken identity, broken sexuality, broken relationships of every kind. There is no place where the glory of God is so obvious and the ache of what's not right is so obvious simultaneously. This is why some of you were really nervous about this series because you know, well, my, my family's really busted. And I've got this going on and I've got that going on. And you know the biblical standard and you know that you're far from it. But the Bible tells us why, why families are so broken. Let's flip the page to Genesis chapter 3. Look what happens next. It tells us that God had created this beautiful space, this garden for them to begin the cultivation of all things. But he gave them one rule. He said, as a test of your obedience and your love for me, as your vow to me, do not eat from this one tree. Well, some of you know the story. The serpent, the enemy of God, came to the woman and deceived her, started sowing questions and doubt into God's goodness, and it began what turned into a full-fledged affair. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both, them were, both of them were opened, and they realized they were, they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Just picture that for a minute. You had this beautiful marriage and this intimate relationship with this man and woman and God. And now after they have disobeyed God and sinned against him, you all, you immediately start to see that there's separation between the man and the woman and, and between the man, woman and God. And things begin to get ugly. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here. That's in the Bible. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Do you notice what's happening here? They denied and defied God. They broke their vows. It's, it's by all accounts an affair of the union and covenant that had been taken between the two of them and God. And then immediately you start to see destruction come into the picture. They're ashamed with each other and they're ashamed before God. They hid from God and it brought separation and division. And now you see the man blaming God and the woman. The woman you made. See, in Genesis 3, we see the origin of sin and what happens from this moment on, instead of there being the fruitful multiplication of God's good, ordered, blessed creation, you see the multiplication of disorder. Very important you get that. Humans are still functioning partially in design, but instead of procreating and creating more of God's good, perfect creation, you're starting to see the multiplication of brokenness. So if you flip the page to Genesis 4, do you know the story? Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills Abel. And then when you start to read down through the generations that come out of the children of Adam and Eve, you start to read just increasing, intensifying family brokenness and destruction. Untold dysfunction and destruction Right in the center of the family, you start to see health and loss and tragedy and marriages. And it goes all the way through the Old Testament. Even all the heroes of the Old Testament. Read Moses' story. It's complicated. Read David's story. It's complicated. I mean, there is death and disappointment and dysfunction and rape and incest and all, every atrocity to the family that you can imagine, it's in here. And if you get one message out of the Old Testament, it's this, that people are hopelessly broken apart from God. And boy, that fleshes itself out most gnarly in the family. So here's the question. This is all, this is really want to land today. What do we do with the brokenness in our world, in our families, in ourselves, what do we do with brokenness? Because I think everybody in here, whether you agree with anything I've said today, you can't look at this world and say, everything's just fine. Can you? If you are, tell me your secret. Like, no, you can't. You can't. Even the best families, you can't look at your family and say, everything is just perfect. It's not, is it? And if you're really honest with yourself, despite some of the messaging that you might be getting from the time you get up till you go to bed, if you are honest with yourself, you can't say, I'm just fine. I'm just perfect the way I am. It's brokenness. What do we do to, to find life and stability and wholeness? That's the big question. Do One, do we continue to go with the flow of culture? Because culture has its own ideas, doesn't it? Well, stay true to yourself. Look inward. You just have to find yourself. Then everything's going to be okay. Look inward. Be true to yourself. Love what you love. Love who you love. Define your reality as you see fit. 
I don't think that that's working out super well for culture, do you? You judge a tree by its fruit. Right now, there's unprecedented levels of family brokenness, confusion, uncertainty, anger, jealousy. Divorce is rampant. Failure to launch in a whole generation is unprecedented. Family relationships are more destructive and more easily destroyed than ever. Like, how many families were torn apart because of a freaking vaccine? There is an aging crisis. There is a birth rate catastrophe that is on its way. There is depression and anxiety and addiction that has never before been seen, at least in Western society. Suicide is absolutely rampant. There is an epidemic of male suicide happening right now that no one talks about. I think we can all kind of look at the flow of mainstream culture and say, man, that's whitewater rapid and that is heading towards a cliff. So do we go with the flow of culture or do we turn in the opposite direction and start swimming back against it? Do we do that? I've talked to a lot of people lately that are flabbergasted and exhausted with trying to fight the good fight against culture. Can I suggest to you that swimming upstream against rapids is just a fool's errand? I wonder if we need as a church to learn not to go with the flow of culture, but also to realize that if you start swimming against the current, you get exhausted and you start hitting people along the way. This past week, uh, I guess two weeks ago, my family and I, we got to go on a, a lovely little vacation. And we went to a water park in January. So, yes, it was warmer where we were. Um, and we went to a water park, and they had this, this uh, attraction called Roa's Rapids. And me and my three kids, we just went around and around on that all day long. And what it is, is it's like a lazy river except on steroids. And so it's like a not lazy river. It's really fast. And you put a life jacket on and you just kind of go flying down the rapids. It's a ton of fun. But we noticed, especially with my seven-year-old, it was really hard to get out. Because the, you, you, you fly right by the exit. And you can't, like, you got to time it just perfect. And if you miss it and you try to swim back against it, you're not. you got to go around again. And that happened a few times. We had to learn. I had to learn, okay, here comes the exit. I'm going to grab my son and I'm going to grab the wall. And I hold the wall and I get my foot under me. And then with a grip on the rock wall, I start to head in, holding my son and bringing him to where we can get our feet under us. And I got thinking about that picture as I was preparing this sermon series. And because I think the temptation for a lot of Christians, you see where the flow of culture is going. You're like, I don't want to go there. And so you make the mistake, though, of swimming back in the opposite direction. The devil is happy for you to focus on not being like them. We are not being called to fight against the current of culture. We are being invited to learn how to stand on the rock. So what do we do? What does that mean? Here's the procedure for families. The procedure. Uh, Jesus, we read it earlier. Jesus had been teaching 
And it tells us there's this large crowd there. And it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? Pointing to his disciples, he said, these are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and my brother. They are my family. Now, I don't know if there's any moms in the place, but if your kids said that, would you not be like, oh, this was shocking. Like super shocking. What is Jesus getting at? Well, this is loaded. He's, he is not rejecting his family. What's he getting at? He's throwing the invitation of acceptance to your family. He's inviting himself to be at the center of the family once again and to put to right everything that went wrong in the first place. He's saying, my family is whoever believes in me. I am at the center of it. It's the restoration of the family. It's the reconciliation with God. It's the invitation to put Jesus at the center of your marriage and your family and your identity and subsequently be found back in the health of God. Jesus is offering us to be put back in the center of our families. I'll say it differently. Say it like this. The secret to a flourishing life and marriage and family is to invite God back into his rightful place at the center of it all. According to God's word, there's no real life, no real marriage, no real enduring, lasting family without him at the center. So the job for us as Christians in this day, and some of you were so disoriented because of the flow of culture, our job is not to fight against culture. Our job is to fight to learn how to cling to Jesus and what that looks like for our families. I had a conversation this week uh, with a a mom and a a grandmother who was deeply concerned about her adult kids and their kids. And I found myself not really having any advice because I'm not a mom or a grandmother. And I don't know the complexities of that. But all I felt in my spirit, and I feel to share this with you today at King's Church, all I could say, the only advice I had was that when it comes to your family, in all of its baggage, and complexity and brokenness, when it comes to your family, the invitation is to trust Jesus. No exceptions. Right now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but you don't know my family. You don't know. No, Jesus invites us to come to him with our family and find ourselves in his To come to him in all of our brokenness, with our broken hearts, our broken lives, our broken dreams, our broken mind, our broken body, our broken family relationships and say, Jesus, I can't fix this. I'm trusting you for life. When it comes, hear me, hear me, hear me. When it comes to family matters, you cannot trust Jesus too much. You hear me? Somebody say, well, yeah, but I'm single. 
you can't trust Jesus too much with your singleness. Yeah, but I'm divorced. The invitation is to bring your divorced self to Jesus. But my husband cheated on me. Trust your adultering husband to Jesus. But I'm gay. Bring yourself to Jesus. But my son has disowned us and left us. Trust your son to Jesus. But my parents won't talk to me. Trust your parents to Jesus. But my wife has left me. Trust your wife to Jesus. Trust your aloneness to Jesus. But my husband's not a believer. Trust your husband to Jesus. Jesus invites us to put him at the center of our family. He is ground zero. He is the rock on which we stand. And from that flows everything else. I don't know who needs to hear this today. But I feel like there's some believers who need a reminder that Jesus is inviting you to trust him fully. That means not just with you, but with those who you love. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with your teenage son, to trust him with your young adult daughter, to trust him with that young adult child who's at now an adult child and who takes one step forward and four steps back. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with your infertility, to trust him with your sexuality, to trust him, trust him with your aging parents, to trust him with your estranged brother, to trust him with your mother who has dementia, to trust your father in his grief after losing your mother. Our job is to learn how to trust Jesus with our families. That's the invitation. Do you believe that he's able to bring your family, your broken, busted family, to life and restore it to its original purpose to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? Our job is not to fight back against culture. Our job is to fight to get Jesus at the center of our family. Let me say it for the people in the back. Our job is not to learn how to swim against culture. Our job is to learn how to cling to Jesus for everything. I find myself with my kids a lot um, trying to dismantle some of the things they're being taught. And listen, I, I want to say we have some godly educators, public school system educators in our church for which I'm thankful, and my kids have some godly people right there for such a time as this. But I find myself often trying to dismantle the things that they're being taught, and maybe this, that's appropriate sometimes, but the thing the Lord's been speaking to me, even as I've been preaching this message and preparing it, is that I think I would be better served to just get them really familiar with Jesus. I think the devil's happy for us to reverse engineer the insanity of mainstream culture, as long as we aren't fixated and focused on Christ. The invitation is to learn to fight to get our families to Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. So here's what we're going to do the next few weeks. 
I'm going to pray for us in just a second. We're going to talk about what it looks like to center our identity on Jesus. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to center our marriages or our singleness or our relationship in Jesus. And then we're going to end the series talking about what it means to bring our parents and our children and center our families on Jesus. And I believe that when we do this and when we bring our family matters to the feet of Jesus, anything is, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Let me end with this. What's the possibility? When Jesus gets your family, your family gets healthier. When Jesus gets your family, your family gets the transforming resurrection, life-altering grace and truth and peace and power of God. When Jesus gets the family, the family gets healthy. And when the family gets healthy, society gets transformed. Can I say that again for the people at the back? When Jesus gets the family, the family gets healthy. And when the family gets healthy, society is transformed. We talk a lot about revival here at King's Church. We believe that God wants to absolutely revolutionize this place we called home here in Atlantic Canada and beyond. He wants to make it look like heaven. We dream a lot about revival. Even last week, Pastor Bradford talked about the Welsh revival and the effects of what happens when hundreds of thousands of people's hearts are captured by the love of Jesus. What happens is civilization and society starts to shift and crime rates go down and divorce rates go down and birth rates go up and generosity goes up and kindness and Christ-likeness goes up. It changes everything. And I am so hungry for that in Atlantic Canada. Anybody else? But here's the question I want to leave with us. What if revival is not going to come through an evangelist or an evangelism program or a church service? What if revival is going to come through healthy families? From a bunch of families that have learned how to cling to Jesus how to welcome him in more and more to give him his rightful place at the center of the home. I believe as he does that, brokenness, darkness, dysfunction, deception, confusion has to go. See, fear and darkness and confusion cannot coexist with the Christ. And as we learn to welcome him in, transformation happens. Here's the question I want you to leave with. Is it possible that revival starts in the home? And is it possible that Jesus wants to transform your family regardless of your family status and your marital status? The invitation is the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. The transformation of society isn't coming from the House of Commons, y'all. You hear me? 
not coming from Google or Apple. It's not coming from some powerful nation with its weapons and military. The transformation of society is coming from men and women who learn to discover Jesus and find their God-given identity as men, their God-given masculinity and all that that means. And it's gonna come from women who find their God-given identity as women and their femininity and their mothering as, and all that that means. It's gonna come from families and from parents whose hearts are turned towards their children and children whose hearts are turned towards their parents and who families who learn to raise up their family in the way of Jesus, in the hope of his kingdom, and seeing that multiplied through generations. That's the hope. As for me and my house, I want to build my broken family on the rock, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? Here's my prayer. It's very simple, and you, I'm gonna say it once, and I want you to listen to it, and then you're gonna, you can agree with me. Jesus, my family is not perfect, but I know my family matters to you. All of it. All of them. And today I choose to bring my family to you. Trusting that only you can bring my family to life. Say it again, you can agree with me in your spirit. Jesus, my family is not perfect, but I know my family matters to you. All of it. Today I choose to bring my family to you. Trusting you can bring my family to life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.